Good evening. Uh, it's absolutely a privilege for me to host the next episode for Thinkers, uh, Thinkers Dialogue. And we have a very special guest today, uh, Dr. Vivek Bedroy. Uh, in fact, uh, this year we are taking a small twist or a turn wherein we are actually doing this conversation sitting at one single place and really trying to understand things about philosophy. But a very quick uh, introduction to Dr. Bedroy. Uh, Dr. Bedroy is, of course, as you know, as all of you would know, is the uh, economic advisor uh, to the Prime Minister, or the exact position is uh, he's the chairman for the Prime Minister's Economic Advisory Council. Uh, he's been a member of the Niti Aayog, a prolific uh, writer. Uh, in fact, I lose the number of uh, the count on the number of books he has done. I think it is close to about 100 dot books that he's already written, uh, tons and tons of articles. But then, one of the most prolific writers I've ever met uh, writes a column with uh, Mint, does a column with India, Indian Express, does something with uh, with newspapers across the board. Uh, but the most important thing being that he writes on economics, but he has another uh, avatar or he has another hat that he wears wherein he actually writes about Indian scriptures and he has translated many of them. In fact, starting with the Bhagavad Quran, he has actually done something on the Mahabharata, he has done uh, things on the Holy Vedas and he has been working on it for the number of years. In fact, uh, a Sanskrit scholar, uh, if I'm not wrong, uh, who learned Sanskrit in the last 10 years uh, when he started uh, doing this work. Uh, and uh, another claim to fame, I can call him as my friend. And then we have also done a couple of pieces uh, together. Uh, but that's a separate conversation that we can have. But Dr. Debroy, thanks a lot for joining us today and being part of the interaction. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, Amit. And good evening. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, uh, Dr. Debroy, we'll quickly dive into the conversation. You know, like uh, your work in the area of uh, philosophy uh, is, is absolutely spanning a very vast gamut. But before we get into that, but my first question is, what got you triggered into working in the area of scriptures, translating scriptures uh, and things? But there are different ways I could respond to that. One way I could respond to that is, what do we mean by scriptures? Or what do we mean by shastras, the sacred texts? The Indian tradition, the Sanskrit tradition, the Hindu tradition has a large number of these. If one asks the question about what is Hinduism, all too often it is equated with Vedanta, with Moksha, with Mukti, with the other world. And if one looks at something like the sacred books of the East series that Max Muller edited, what was translated? What was translated was primarily the Upanishads, the Dharma Shastras. So, from the point of view of translations in English, and we are talking about translations in English, the impression one has is that Sanskrit and the Sanskrit literature, the Sanskrit corpus, is about the other world or it's about literature, Kalidasa. But very few people go off on Varnaprastha and Sanyas. The vast majority of people, then as in as now, they were householders. So what they did they do? What they did what is encapsulated in the text that I am translating, which is broadly called Itihas and Purana. The Ramayana and the Mahabharata and the 18 Puranas that we will talk about, they are referred to sometimes as the Pancham Veda because in daily practice they were meant to reflect the teachings of the Vedas. It is important to appreciate that this corpus, and I repeat it has not been translated generally, sometimes not even appreciated within India, this corpus is about this world. Had it been translated by the Sanskrit pundits, there would have been no need for me to dabble in this. That's primarily the reason. Often when one looks at Western scholars, they pick and choose. And sometimes you criticize their translations. That's completely negative until we begin to do our own translations. So that's a response at one level. The other kind of response is probably the true one. Which is not I who am doing it, I'm just the instrument that's being done. So th that's a very fascinating answer when you say you're in, you as an instrument. 
can, can you give me more insights in terms of what do you mean by being an instrument uh, here? Well, we don't really have the time, but I can give you countless coincidences, countless accidents, all sort of driving, driving me in this direction. If we have time, I can, can recount some of those. But essentially, these are all remarkable, remarkable coincidences. Coincidences, accidents, destiny, you can choose to call it what you will. So as we go deeper into this conversation, Dr. Debroy, uh, one of the challenges as I see within the field is that the Western philosophy seems to have a very strong mandate in terms of education. People are reading about it. But somehow, our philosophical teachings, like when you talk about the Vedas, the Puranas, this don't seem to actually find adequate space or place in curriculums across the world. And why is it that we have not been able to push for the importance of understanding these scriptures? We had six schools of Darshan. Philosophy is probably not the best word to use because Darshana really means insight. These six schools of Darshana, they were of course Vedanta, they were Purva Mimamsha, there was Yoga, which we have reduced to physical postures and calisthenics. There was Naya, which was about logic and debating. There was Vaisheshika, which was a bit about principles. And there was Sankhya. Now, yes, except for Yoga and Sankhya, we have just lost others, partially because the texts have been lost. And I should quickly say, that there is the National Manuscript Mission, which lists manuscripts defined as those which are more than 75 years old. And it has a list. It has so far listed 3.5 million manuscripts, private collections, public collections, just listing, naming them. It estimates there are about 40 million. Just to give a benchmark for that 40 million figure, the UN figure, on the number of books that have been published in any language in the world is 150 million. 40 million is important because 95% of them have not been translated yet. There is, a man, there is a text that goes back to around the 13th century. I have a copy of that, but it's not on my agenda of translations. It's called the Chaudhya Shastra. As the term suggests, it's a manual for thieves. And had one translated it, it would have come to about 400 pages. So there are all kinds of things these texts talk about. As I said, they are about people conducting their daily existence, their normal lives. They are about what the king should do. They are about what the individual should do. It is not just about moksha. There are four objectives, dharma, artha, kama, moksha. Moksha is about the other world. Now, the, it is very easy to point a finger towards the West that you are not considering all of this tradition. Some of it was not written. I mentioned the National Manuscript Mission, but a large part of it was through oral transmission, and that's increasingly getting lost. What are we as a collective entity doing to preserve this? So as I said, pointing a figure at someone else is always easy. I think we should also point the figure inwards. So it, it has to be a pursuit that we have as society, as Indians, that have to really push forward. And you push it forward, if I may say so, because it is an agenda that has to be pushed forward, not because it is remunerative or lucrative to do so. When I began, this exercise several, several years ago, about 15 years ago, not very seriously, but I want, went around asking people, will you pay me 50,000 to do this? Not very seriously, 50,000 per month. Then I will give up everything else and do this. And lo and behold, there was not a single take. I'm not talking about Westerners. I'm talking about Indian philanthropists who would much rather go and fund Harvard than fund this. So, I think this is also important to make this point that you do it because it needs to be done. 
not because it brings me an immediate monetary reward. Mm -hmm. So it's about a contribution that you're able to make. That's right. And the reason I'm mentioning this is we've got 70 Sanskrit universities. Why aren't they being pressed? They're being funded by the public exchequer. Why don't do they do it? They don't. And we will talk about this later. The Mahabharata in unabridged form has been translated only three times, twice, in English. A lot of the translations we see are abridged. Unabridged, word for word, just twice. All three, well, it happened to be mad eccentric Bengalis, but other than that, all three are not Sanskrit pundits. So the tradition of translation that existed in Bengal in the 19th century occurred because it took it out of the clutches of the Sanskrit pundits. That, that's interesting. But let me just take a step back on, on what you said. When you talk about, say, Indian philosophy, it, it probably moves towards more of metaphysics uh, as an idea in terms of saying that what's going to happen in life, after life, and so on and so forth. Not at all. That's the point I'm making. It's misconception. The Naya tradition debates logic. I have stopped appearing on TV panels. Often still do. The Naya tradition said that if I'm having a debate, there is a certain civilized way of going about it. So before I make my point, I state Amir Kapoor, Amit Kapoor's views. That's called the Purva Paksha. And then I counter it. There is an account by Yuan Sang of a debate that took place in Nalanda then, involving the then Vice Chancellor, if I want to a better word, Chancellor, called Sheila Bhadra and someone else. So, uh, the other gentleman raised his voice and the debate went on for days. Next day, he just raised his voice. Next day, this gentleman comes and starts by telling Sheila Vadra, I'm sorry I raised my voice yesterday. Sheila Vadra said, no, I am sorry that I made you raise your voice. Now, this was the tradition of debate. So, it is, this is not about the other word. That is the reason I'm very hesitant to e use labels like metaphysical and spiritual. Because these six darshanas were imbibed and they permeate this Itihas Purana that I'm talking about. It's not just about the other word. So this is interesting. And But when you talk about the various schools, there's also been a very fascinating school called Charvak. Uh, which somehow we have lost because that was also about logic. Uh, we might actually disagree with it or whatever, but then uh, what, what about the whole idea of Charvak itself? Who said? I know it's very fashionable to mention Charvak, which actually means Charuva, uh, which is someone who's eloquent in speech. We have no records anywhere. Anywhere. I defy a famous Nobel laureate who keeps mentioning Charvak to prove to me where he has found any actual reference to Charvak. The earliest reference to someone by the name of Charvak is a text that goes to the 13th century ADACE, not before. We have nothing, we know nothing about Charvak. Zero. Oh, so that, that means there is a lot of misinformation. Of course well. there is. Of course there is. So one of the biggest challenges that we might actually face today is to really tell people that how to get over this misinformation, how to learn, how to really process this. Yes. And unfortunately, it is propagated by people who have attained positions of eminence and therefore they pontificate on everything under the sun. And one takes their words and their letters and their writings as pearls of wisdom. How do we break this chain? Well, everyone can do his or her own little bit. The only little bit that I can do, which is what I'm engaged in, 
is to translate into English because there are plenty of people who do not know Sanskrit anymore. So I am at least rendering it into English. And uh, I want to quickly mention something else. As illustrative of why it is important to read these. I said there are 18 Puranas. One of the Puranas I have already translated is the Markandeya Puran. In the Markandeya Puran, there is a reference to a demoness, an ogress. Her name is Jata Harini. Jata Harini, as the name implies, steals newborn babies. That's not all she does. She steals a newborn baby from this house, goes to another house where there is a newborn baby, replaces that with this one, takes that newborn baby, goes to another house where there is a newborn baby, replaces that and generally causes confusion as a result of this. However, Jato Harini also devours each every third baby. Apart from the Jatahari story, what this is telling us that the infant mortality rate then was one third or three thirds of people thousand. Now, this is the kind of thing that illustrates the need for multidisciplinary examination of these texts. We cannot only leave it to Sanskrit scholars. Mm -hmm. We need a wider dissemination of this. Well, let me give you another example. Everyone, at, every, at least most Indians, will know about Vishnu's Matsya Avatar. The Matsya Avatar story stated very simply is that the world was going to be deluged and Manu went to have a bath in a river, which river, by the way, is called Kritamala. And as part of our legacy, our treasure, we should recognize or know that this river Kritamala, where it is, most people will not know. The river was called Kritamala. Most people will not know that this has become a tributary and has been reduced to the status of a nala of the Vaiga near Madurai railway station. But let's leave that aside. So he goes to this river to have a bath. He finds this small fish. He brings the fish home puts it in a pot, the fish gradually goes bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and eventually the fish helps rescue Manu when there is this great deluge. Question, what kind of a fish was it? The Puranas were composed in different parts of India. The Bhagavad Puran was composed towards the south, probably Tamil Nadu, you can make out from the text, coastal areas. In the Bhagavad Puran, the fish is a safari. Safari is a silvery white fish that you find in the sea. Come to the Brahma Puran, which was composed in the eastern parts, particularly what today we would call Odisha, but a broader expanse of Odisha. All of us know that in the eastern parts of India, there is one particular fish that is very popular. It's called the Rohu, the Rohit Matsya in Sanskrit. In the Bhagavad Puran, composed in the east, where Rohu is very uh, popular, that fish now becomes a Rohit fish. So, these, this kind of information also is very illustrative of the socio-economic profiles of different parts of India. So, these texts are about geography, they are about history, they are about evolution of language, they are about Culture. So the depth of knowledge that comes across with these texts is so tremendous. Uh, so that is why I come back to your point that it is much more important today to really understand as to how India has evolved per se, because that is what clearly happens uh, through the test or learning from these texts. Well, there are two kinds of responses I have. One kind of response I have is we mechanically do various things. At one level, I can say, oh, I'm not interested in all this. Forget all of that. But there are people who don't forget all of this, but they make a fetish of these things. So they will chant a mantra as part of the fetish. And they will say, Om Shantihi Shantihi Shantihi. But I'm doing this. 
shouldn't I be asking, why do I say Shanti three times? Why don't I say it 15 times? Why don't I say it 19 times? There is a reason. And it sort of boggles my mind that people don't seem to be interested. People will mechanically go to a temple without recognizing that the contours of how a temple should be constructed. These are in other texts also, but primarily the contours of how a temple should be constructed. Say in the Matsya Puran. The image of a deva or a deva or a devi is there in various places. But fundamentally, Agni Puran. I will do my Sraddha ceremonies. I will follow the Garur Puran. So I will mechanically do all of this without recognizing. But the other reason is, as I said, they are encyclopedias. And because they were unnecessarily dismissed as myth, people have just discounted them. The last person who had did a serious examination of these was um, Parjitar, colonial period. We may have problems with what Parjitar did. Let us examine these texts. And of course, the University of Dhaka in 1948, a gentleman named Dr. Hazra, Hazra, yeah, Dr. Hazra did his PhD thesis on these. So there was this tradition, certainly in the 19th century. Here was Haraprasad Shastri. When we are talking about the Puranas, we are talking about the texts. And where were many of these texts available? Many of these texts were available in Nepal. So here was Haraprasad Shastri going to Nepal to collect these texts. Now, where is that tradition? Mm -hmm. And But when you say, like, we have relegated a lot of these things to, say, calling them as myths or whatever, we have demeaned them in many, many ways. But don't you think it started with Macaulay at some point in time and we are still struggling with that whole thinking? Um, I, I may have a lot of problems with Macaulay. But I think Macaulay is unnecessarily blamed because many people who have read that famous minute have not read the background to that minute. What is the background to that minute? The background to that minute, minute was that it was proposed that the government should fund Arabic and Sanskrit education. So the context was public funding. And Macaulay asked, first demonstrate to me what has been the outcome of the earlier funding. And then I will agree to this. But we just clutch out a couple of sentences. So the entire shelf consists of this, 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 that. But this was the context. And I would say the same thing today. Demonstrate to me what the funding to the Sanskrit universities universities has achieved. This is an outlay outcome budgetary yes. exercise. Today we would applaud it. So Macaulay by all means abuse Macaulay. But for God's sake first read what Macaulay said and understand the context. So you, you did say something very interesting in the beginning of the conversation that there are 17 Sanskrit universities. So since you've uh, talked about universities a couple of times, like well, what's the outcome of these universities as you're alluding to? Well, it boils down to the question of the way we teach Sanskrit. Sanskrit, the word Sanskrit means polished. Till about the 6th century ACE, the language was called Bhasha. Bhasha is, well, Bhasha is, uh, it's still called that in Indonesia. Bhasha is something that we speak. And the way we learn any language is we learn to speak it. We make mistakes. We are corrected. We learn. That's how we learn any language. I do not think too many people would have learned English by mugging up Nesfield's grammar or Fowler's, whatever, whatever. Around the 6th century ACE, the language began to be called Sanskrit, which is a polished form of Varsha. Now, a lot of people say, ah, look, Sanskrit wasn't spoken by the masses. Yes, precisely. How many people speak King's English? If I spoke King's English, I would not be understood in London. 
So this was the polyform of the language. Over a period of time, unfortunately, one should not blame only the colleges and the universities because the roots of the problem, in my view, begin at the level of the schools. Because instead of teaching them Sanskrit using conversations, we make them monk tables, grammar tables. The grammar tables have a logic of their own. Unfortunately, you don't realize the rationale of the grammar tables unless you've learned a sufficient amount of Sanskrit. So it's taught in a completely, completely perverse way and it puts people off. And, and you're, you mentioned it in passing. I have no formal training in Sanskrit, so I'm looked upon as a dilettante by the Sanskrit scholars also because I'm completely self-taught at home. Okay, so when, when you're saying Sanskrit, in fact, I, I, I want to understand something of Sanskrit before we go back to philosophy. Uh, there is this danger of losing the language as well. That there seems to be that whole huge conversation and that's happening because if we lose the language, then we lose a lot of knowledge that we are um, I'm a bit more optimistic now. The reason I'm a bit more optimistic is there is something called Sanskrit Bharati, which is completely outside the formal system. And it teaches Sanskrit to people through camps, two-week camps. So at the end of two weeks, you will begin to converse in Sanskrit. You will not be proficient enough understand Kalidasa without a dictionary, but you will be proficient enough if you attend two of the Sanskrit Bharati um, workshops to lead, lead something like Panchatantra, which is simpler Sanskrit. And there are two numbers I can give you. One is a number of households in India, families, which thanks to Sanskrit Bharati now speak Sanskrit at home. I repeat, they speak Sanskrit at home. And the figure is around 500,000. That's a colossal number. And we have the census figures. Remember when I'm asking a question in the census, I'm asking a question about the first language, second language, and third language. Typically, Sanskrit will not be the first language, the second language, or the third language. It will be fourth, fifth, whatever. And when we process the data, we never look at anything beyond the third language. Having said that, in the census, there are 45,000 people in India who report Sanskrit as being their mother. Mm -hmm. So Sanskrit is not in the state that Latin has been reduced to. Fascinating. And when you talk about language and you, uh, translation and language, like Sanskrit being a very... Uh, complicated language, if I might say that way, or for lack of a better word. Uh, when I say complicated, I mean that for a single word, there could be many, many meanings that actually get attributed. So was it a major uh, issue or how, how, how did this really uh, no, take about? No, 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 no. Um, one should understand that the basis of the language is completely different. In Sanskrit, the root is the verb. The noun, the proper name, the pronoun, they're irrelevant. The root is the verb. So if I know the meaning of the verb, I will be able to get make a reasonable guess about what the Noun means. And I'll answer your question in a minute. So when I see this leaf, there are many words for leaf in Sanskrit. One of them is parna. But the root of parna is something that makes things green. So the moment I hear parna, it is not conjuring up before me the image of a leaf. It is conjuring up before me the image of something that makes things green. A chair is asandaha. But it's not conjuring up the image of a chair. Instead, asanda is something that gives me a good posture. A tree. Many names for a tree. But one of the names for a tree is padapaha. And what is padapaha? Padapaha is something that is drinking up the water with its feet. 
Now, the way to link it with your question is therefore, if instead of a chair, I sit on something else that gives me a posture, that's also asanda. So if someone tells me what it, what does ajagara mean in Sanskrit? Ajagara is something that swallows a goat. Aja is a goat. So technically it is correct to say that the English for an ajagara is a python or a boa constrictor. But if a crocodile comes along and swallows a goat, technically that's also a ajagara. If Amit can manage to swallow a goat, Amit is also an ajagara. So the nouns can have multiple meanings, but the verbal root is the same. And it comes across in the way we discuss philosophy and things like that. Because the aham, the root principle of all our texts, many principles, but one of the root principles of all our texts is you need to get rid of aham, I, and you need to get rid of mama, mine. Language shapes culture. Language shapes attitudes. The word for the language is Sanskrit. The word for culture is Naskriti. They are allied to each other. So language shapes the way we look at the word. Because the verb is important and the noun and pronoun are not important. Because Sanskrit or any Indian language will typically not have the word I in capital letters. Getting rid of Aham and Mama, in my view, is easier for all of us. To give an example, unless you have been completely, completely westernized, whether it is in English or whether it is in an Indian language, you will not say, I am Amit. You will typically say, my name is Amit. Or you will say, I am known as Amit. I am Amit very western. It does not come naturally to us. But coming back to your question and therefore there are challenges in translating from Sanskrit to English because the basis of these two languages is completely different. And yes, there are some words which can therefore never be satisfactorily translated into English like dharma or karma. So when you starting with your first translation, uh, you, you translated the Vedas. In fact, there's a very fascinating mantra there. And uh, for, from you, I wanted to understand the deep meaning of it because it could be sung as a prayer, but it could probably be seen as a uh, idea of uh, creation as well. The mantra, the whom Hiranya Garba Samavata Kagre, Bhuta Sajata Patire Kayasi, Sadatha Kutti Dhamata, Kasmai Deva Yahar Shadi. So, what does this? Because this is where everything starts from a philosophical treatise, if, I, if I'm not wrong. We need to be careful. We need to be careful about A, the word Deva. Deva, Devi, Devata, Devata doesn't really matter. I casually translate it in English or am I casually translate it into English as God very, very misleading. Because Deva, Devi, simply means the shining one. That's it. Which is why the sun is Devakar, Devakara, because it gives us, the day is Deva. So it is just the shining one. There is this famous story about Nala and Damayanti's so Damayanti Samvara and Damayanti wanted to marry Nala. But four guardians of the world, Indra, Mitra, Varuni, Yama, they also wanted to marry Damayanti. So suddenly Damayanti saw five Nalas standing in front of her and she was unable to distinguish. And then she realized that these four brothers, they did not cast shadows, they did not wink, they did not sweat. And she realized they were devas. So you must be careful not to use the word deva in the sense, not to loosely translate it as God. All devas, our for us time is cyclical. There, there is the secondary cycle of creation and destruction, and there is the primary cycle of creation and destruction. 
Indra is a titan. Indra, Indra, Indra changes. Indra changes from one era to another. All these devas, they died. Even the trinity of Brahma, Vishnu, Maheshwara, in the final dissolution, they also merge. And therefore, there is the Paramatma, there is the Brahman, unmanifest, nirguna, without attributes, without qualities. Nowhere do our texts say, I know what it is. Not the Vedas, they were composed by Rishis. The Rishis felt something, realized something. They never said, I know the truth. They always said, this is what I have seen. This is what I have experienced. Vedaha metam, I have felt. Not that this is the truth for everyone. Now, so far as the Devas are concerned, therefore there are layers and layers. The Devas, I'm not talking about the Brahman, the Paramatman, which is without any attributes, without any gunas. They are just superior entities. And to paraphrase Sri Aurobindo, the goal of our earthly existence, samsara, is to elevate ourselves. Go up the ladder of comprehending our Atma and getting closer and closer to the status of a Deva. The Bhagavad Gita itself says that the attributes of being a Deva and the attributes of being an Asura exist in all of us. So it's a question of curbing the Asura attributes, enhancing the Deva attributes. So that would be my roundabout way of responding to it. Okay. And, but when you say the criticism, uh, let, let me come to the criticism of, say, Indian philosophy someday. And I will seek an answer on that. But when you say Atma, because that also leads us to the whole idea of cyclicality, as you said, which is karma. And uh, But then, does it really stall us from being a self, being able to create our own destiny or uh, something like that? Or something about look, free will. Look, if you are talking about criticisms of Indian philosophy, I would say, remember what I said earlier, first stage is a Purva option. Like Don Quixote, don't go tilted windmills. Tell me what your problem is. If you are telling me I am an atheist and people say so, I would say, well, look, the word A is a negative. So unless you're defining yourself as a perpetual negative like a neighbor does vis-a-vis -vis India, the word atheist does not mean anything to me until you tell me what is the theist you're opposing. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to say I'm agnostic? Unless you tell me what is the gnostic that you're opposing, I don't understand. Gnostic, the word has the same roots as gana, knowledge. How can you be against knowledge? Huxley, Burton, Russell who use these terms they use them in a certain Christian context. So first, my first response would be, please tell me what you understand by philosophy. To me, Hinduism believes in few core principles. If you believe in them, then whatever your other beliefs are, you essentially agree. One, there is an Atma. Two, when you die, the Atma does not die. So therefore you are reborn. So it believes in rebirth until the eventual liberation from that cycle. And it believes in karma. If you believe in these, then you are a Hindu, regardless of what else, whatever God you, whether it is Shiva or Vishnu or whatever it is. When I was a student abroad, and students abroad are typically hard pressed for money. So I volunteered for an experiment where there was a person, famous physicist, and he had devised certain gadgets. And he used wanted volunteers, student volunteers. And volunteers volunteered like me because you were paid money. What was the idea? 
while you slept, you'd strap all kinds of instruments around you because he wanted to test the hypothesis that when you sleep, the Atman leaves the body and it should show up in weight changes, pressure changes, whatever, whatever. Obviously, he found that no such thing happened and therefore, um, he concluded that all this was rubbish and he published a paper. His paper apart, this is not how you go about trying to understand that is something much, much more profound. Mm -hmm. So, when you talk about the idea of Atma and kinship, how, how does it really impact us in terms of like life, per se, leading, leading our life? Because that becomes a very important question for us. Because if there is, as I personally would believe, there is karma, there is afterlife. Uh, how, how, how does it impact us? And what is the learning that you draw uh, from this, from the translations that you've done? There are two levels at which I can answer this question. The first level is, I don't think one should at all bother about this unless one is interested. I'm not talking about reading my text that, uh, about these steps. Because the motivation for doing this, the trigger for doing this has to come from within. If it doesn't, I think it's complete waste of time to mechanically recite a, a verse of the Bhagavad Gita. The compulsion, the internal compulsion has to come from within. When it does, then you are ready. Until that comes, don't bother. But I think at some point in life, everyone should ask. Not that everyone asks, but everyone should ask, who am I? What is the definition of I? Where have I come from? Where will I go? And where am I? Why am I here? This is the root of philosophy. I believe that when you read these things, you change. You become less attached to things that are transient and temporary. Quite often we define happiness in terms of very transient objects. When we were kids, oh, so-and-so has this toy. Wouldn't it be wonderful if I had that toy? That, getting that toy would have brought happiness to me. Today at this age, will, I, will a toy give me happiness? It won't. So all these notions of happiness are temporary. This is about something that is permanent, permanent happiness. Why should I go to a god, a goddess, and say, please make me pass these exams? If at all the god of the goddess does that, the god of the goddess is going to bestow on me something that is a bit more permanent rather than something as transitory as my passing the exams because day after tomorrow I will be interested in something else. So these texts change you. How they have changed you, how they change you, and I have changed. But how they change you, how they change me, I'm not the right person to answer. Because you need an outsider to detect that and explain it. So at some point you should ask my wife, not me. But what does happen is because you are less interested in the temporary. Two things happen. A, you are less prone to temporary emotions, which in our text we describe as the six vices of karma, krodha, loha, moha, madha, and matsalya. And therefore, you find the much more elusive and much more important attribute of not sukha, which is happiness, but shanti which is tranquility, serenity, and peace. So it's not what I get. Much more important is what I lose. Oh, fascinating. And, but co coming back to your point, you know, like in terms of the questions that philosophy is seeking to answer, your work in this area has probably given you a lot of insights. Who am I? Uh, how would you want to answer that for, for a normal layman to understand? 
and probably create a broader impact understanding? No, no, I think not, because this is the point I was making about the rishis earlier. That in the West, there is always a tendency to bracket everything in black and white, good and bad, binaries. I know what is right. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Thou shalt, thou shalt. Our thing is not like that. Meaning, there is this wonderful mystery. And I have felt something. And anyone who dabbles in these translating or otherwise will feel something. But what I feel will not necessarily be the same as what Amit Kapoor feels. In that sense, our texts, if I juxtapose science and faith, what is the definition of science? It's empirical. Our texts actually advocate empirical testing. That you do it and you will yourself experience something. But what you are experiencing is not what someone else will experience. So that means that as it, as it is said, it becomes a very personal pursuit. Until I guess you have reached all the way up the ladder, when you begin to have more of an universal perspective. But for most people, we are at various stages of the ladder. So I don't think one can extrapolate and say, I have an universal experience of this is it, which is really the reason why the, why the Brahman or the Paramatma is always defined in negative terms, meaning neti, neti. It is not this, it is not this, it is not this, it is not this. So, philosophy, as, as you're saying, like life and philosophy is to really experience and look at life in the shades of grey, as, as you would want to say it. Yes, but look, Western philosophy, Burton was This table is square. Do I know it is square? It is appearing square from this particular angle and perspective. From a different angle and perspective, it would appear as something else. This is Burton Russell, it's not any of the Indian texts. So therefore, philosophy is by is about asking. Can I find a reality that is impervious to the senses? And in some sense, I think Burton Russell would have been, I'm not sure how aware he was, with the Indian tenets because all of Sankhya is completely about that. The Sankhya state. That how can I transcend the senses? And can I at all determine the reality if I am the observer? In a way, it is Heisenberg's principle of uncertainty. It's just that. That if I'm part of that, then how can I detect anything that is outside? It's like goldfish in a bowl. What perspective do they have about the rest of the world? There was a gentleman who wrote a satire novel in um, the 19th century. I think his name was Abbott. 19th century, early 20th century. This was called Flatland. And it was social satire. So here there was a country which was only existed in two dimensions, since it was called flatland. And the social hierarchy was if you were females, you if you were female, you were a doctor. If you were a male but lower down in the hierarchy, you were a straight line. A bit further up the social hierarchy, you became a triangle. The more sides you have, the higher up the hierarchy. When suddenly a sphere appears from the three-dimensional world. And in the three-dimensional world, the sphere as it crosses, imagine a sphere, a ball crossing a piece of paper. It will first appear as a dot. Then it will become larger and larger circle. It will appear like a circle. And then as it passes through it, it will become smaller and smaller. So the sphere appears. And the sphere tries to explain to a two-dimensional disciple he's gathered what the three dimensions are like. And the fellow doesn't have the focus right. 
So it keeps trying to explain, but anything that is in the three-dimensional world is beyond the comprehension of this particular person. At the end of which, the disciple, having been converted, asks the sphere, that wait a minute, you, you say you come from a three-dimensional world. But then if you come from a three-dimensional world, there must be a four-dimensional world, there must be a five-dimensional world at which the sphere uh, uh, lost, loses its temper and uh, disowns the disciple. Point being that we are constrained by the dimensions we operate in. And I'm not talking about Einstein and, and time. And there may very well be other dimensions, logically, which is beyond us to appreciate using our senses or even think about proving or disproving because all of our apparatus especially external apparatus and science typically means external apparatus this measuring dot that measuring dot not inside all of these are conditioned by this world that we live in whereas probably and this is what our texts say probably we will have a better we will make a better attempt at comprehension and understanding if we look inside not external but on to your point you know like it it pushes me to ask you a very uh, different kind of a question. Like when you talk about science and when you talk about philosophy, and as I understand from you and after having read some of it, that both of them are today trying to talk about the same set of things. The idea of creation. Our texts do push us towards understanding some idea of creation, that it probably started from nothing to nothing, it will move to nothing. And that's what exactly science is possibly saying. So do, do you think there is going to be that huge convergence of this beautiful spot and idea? Um, you said science, but I guess what you really mean is physics. Yeah. There is a great deal, it's not related, directly related to your question, but let me say this nonetheless. There is a great deal of arrogance that technology more than science has brought. Because of our technological superiority, we think we have mastered everything, we know the answer to everything under the world. I have, I now know how to create life. And probably in the last year, we know how, I know how to create death also. Technology has brought that arrogance. But if I look at science, most people's perceptions of science and physics is based on a Newtonian world of certainty. But physicists know that the Newtonian word, world of certainty does not exist. And the Newtonian laws do not work in outer space, in cosmology, nor do they work in quantum mechanics. You're absolutely right if you look at the new explorations, whether it is in quantum theory or whether it is in cosmology, you will find remarkable, remarkable similarities with our texts say, except that the average person will not know about those theories, those theories and these theories, but is rests its feet on Newton standing there and that way. Mm -hmm. And if I really have to ask people, if they want to dwell into this area and read more about it, where do, where do you think they should start? Because I think what the body of work that you have done, there has to be some appreciation that has to be built across people. But not your text, but where, where do you think they should start? I think, I think it's a bit like, suppose someone came to you, student of economics, and said, please recommend a textbook on economics. What would you say? You say, wait a minute, which class are you in? Which standard are you in? What have you learned so far? Because you will not recommend the same textbook of economics to a student who is in standard 10, yeah. as to an undergraduate student, as to a graduate student. So I think the question to ask is, what are you after? What do you expect to achieve? It's become very fashionable to say, I want to read the Upanishads. Can you recommend a good translation of the Upanishads? Reluctantly, I recommend. 
But I don't think the Upanishads are for everyone. The Itihas Purana text that I'm translating, they render the same purpose for popular accounts. Plus the encyclopedias, enormous amount of geography, etc. I said that earlier. And because people relate to stories, I think people should find these more interesting. And they have already been exposed to some versions of these through dumbed-down comic strips, um, TV serials, films. So these would probably go, be more easy. For example, if I were to talk about the major Upanishads, apart from the Brihadaranak Upanishads and the Chandogya Upanishads, where are their stories? There are no stories. And I could spend hours and hours to just try and understand what it says. Take one example, the Ishopanishad. I hope I'm not boring the viewers to death with this. Take the Ishopanishad, one of the briefer Upanishads. First verse. Isha vassan idan sarvam yat kinchit jagatyam jagat. Tena tektena bhunjita ma gridha. Translated by so many people. Isha vassan yagat sarvam yat kinchit jagatyam jagat. Isha, the Brahman, the Paramatman pervades everything in the universe, everything that moves. Isha Vasangidan Sarvang Chatkinche Jagat Tam Jagat Tena Taktena Bhujita. Pause that for a minute. Ma Gridra Tasva Do not desire what belongs to me. Tena Taktena Bhujita. Look at the translations. Very few people, including sages, have been able to translate tena tektena bhunjita, particularly bhunjita, which means to enjoy properly. So I could spend days and days reflecting on this. I don't think it's for the common person. And the response I can give to your thing is a great, great teacher was Adi Shankaracharya. Because he did things, he chose his textbook for want of a better word, depending on the audience. An ordinary person, the Shankaracharya's totrams express everything. For someone more at in intermediate level, he would have other things. For the really advanced, there would be something like Shankar Pasha. So I think the first thing to ask is, what am I after? What do you want? It's a bit like when I want to study mathematics. I'll pick up a textbook because everyone else is reading it. First 20 pages are easy. I will read the 20 pages. Then it becomes tougher. God, this is not my textbook. I'll pick up another textbook and again read 20 pages. That's not how you learn mathematics. Mm -hmm. So you need to decide what you want. And so coming to your work for a moment, You've done so many translations. Where are you looking at uh, this whole work or body of work going into the future? Well, it's still a transitive verb, meaning it is an ongoing exercise. It is continuing. So far, I have done the Mahabharata, the Harivangsha. The Harivangsha is about Krishna's childhood exploits, which also figures in the Puranas. Almost inevitably, I did the Valmiki Ramayana because I had done the Mahabharata. And I said almost inevitably because everything else that I'm doing is believed to have been composed by Veda Vyasa. The Mahabharata, and there's a reason why I'm giving you this figure, the 10 volume Mahabharata translation amounts to 2.25 million words. It gives you a, some idea of the size. The 18 Mahapuranas together are four times the size of the Mahabharata. That's a massive magic massive project, which means that the uh, 18 Mahapuranas together will amount to something like 12 million words. So far, and when I say a Purana, the translation, because sometimes they are long, they are in multiple volumes. So far, what has been published is the Bhagavad Puran and the Markande Puran. The Brahma Puran and the Vishnu Puran are with the publisher. For all of these, the publisher is Penguin. They will be published in the course of this year. I am uh, I have now doing the Shiva Puran. 
So the idea is to do one Purana a year until the two very last ones because they are massive and those are the Padma Purana and the Skanda so, but if I if I really ask you, what was your biggest insight from all these translations? If I if I really ask you to put it in one paragraph, one line, whatever. Of course, you did say that it is not about I; it is about us in some ways. And then, the biggest insight is I'm sure I'm not answering your question because you use the word insight in a certain sense. My biggest insight is. At this enormous storehouse of knowledge. Why didn't I read it? And I will find everything that I want, everything that I'm looking for, whether it is the other world, this world, every world, in this. And naturally, because by training I'm an economist. So when I find Bhishma lying down on his bed of arrows and instructing Yudhishthira in Shantipara. And uh, when um, it, when um, Bhishma tells Yudhishthira, these are the 17 most important types of civil cases that you must try in order of priority. And I find that right at the top, in that day and age, civil cases, it's breach of contract. So I sit up and say, oh my God, I didn't know that. Or... Same Bhishma teaching Yudhishthira says, if it's a rich man, guilty of a crime, criminal cases now, you must not imprison him because it's at the cost of the public exchequer. Instead, only the poor person guilty of a crime who cannot afford to pay should be imprisoned. Stated like this, you might have a moral issue with the argument. But there is no denying it's an impeccable, impeccable logical argument and left to itself you will say, oh, these are the guys, law and economics guys from Chicago who have come up with this or the World Bank. So, <coughs> insight can be of different types because as I said, these texts are about moksha dharma also. And the question, when you ask the question about insight, you meant it in the sense of moksha dharma. But there is also the dharma, artha and karma, the three other objectives, which is not about the other world, which is about this world. So tremendous insight there. Today, we expect, not just in India, everywhere that the government should do everything. Here we have a situation where the government, and by the way, the tax GDP ratio then was roughly what it is now. A tad higher, it was 16%, then today it is 15% the tax GDP. But the government was expected to do a limited number of things. And here, we pay more or less the same level of taxes, but we expect the government to do everything else. Who did the other stuff? The community did. The individual did. If I look at two polarized, caricatured extremes, two polarized, caricatured extremes of governance, the capitalist model, I said caricatured because the ideal does not exist anywhere. Capital, capitalism, every decision, everything done by the market. Caricatured example, socialism, everything done by the state has not Here we had an alternative template. An alternative template, some things done by the king or government, some things done by the community, some things done by the individual. So it is an alternative template for governance also. That's also an insight, not just about the other world, which is why I keep making this point. It's not just about the other world. But I ask anyone, tell me a text that talks about governance. People will say copy. Arthashastra, not even copy. Arthashastra was a manuscript that had been lost until Shama Shastri discovered it in 1905 and translated it. So imagine the stuff we have here. So I wish people actually read them. I wish people actually researched them. This treasure house of knowledge. So possibly at some point in time, you would want to write something on economics or insights on economics from the various texts. I 
have to divulge a secret, I have a contract with the publisher. But I have defaulted because I have not been able to find the time. Okay, so you are actually working on that. Not working on it. It's up there somewhere. <laughs> Perfect. But Dr. Debroy, this has just been such a fascinating conversation. Very, very insightful. I hope I could have continued for on this. But I, I'm sure we can talk on this for hours and hours together uh, sometime in the near future. Thanks a lot for joining us today. It's been Thank, you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.